why don't I pray and then we'll jump into uh, the, the last verse of 1 Corinthians 13. So, Father, we thank you so much for your word. And Lord, thank you that um, in it, Lord, you actually reveal your unfailing love for us. And Father, please help us to see that today. Help us to experience that today. Help us to know it today. Lord, um, please speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, when I was about 13, uh, my mom used to pick us up on the last day of school. And we had this tradition, we'd go get ice cream. And so my mom picked up me and my sister and our friend Joe. And we'd go to ice cream, and as we're finishing ice cream, mom says, hey, I need to go to the mall, because I need to pick something up for somebody. And we're like, great, you know, every 13-year-old is like, yeah, let's go to the mall. And so we went to the mall, and I want you to picture, if you've seen Stranger Things, you know the mall in Stranger Things, I swear they filmed it at my shopping mall when I was a kid growing up, because that's what it looked like. And we're, my mom's at like JCPenney's or something like that, and we go out into the main part of the mall. And my friend Joe looks at me, and he looks at these two double doors, and he looks at me and my sister, and then he looks at the two double doors, and they're like unmarked double doors, not a store, just two doors on the side. And he darts through the doors. We're like, what is he doing? And so we, my sister and I look at each other, well, we've got to chase him. So we go chasing after him. We bust through the double doors. And now we're in, I didn't know this existed until this moment. Did you know that there are hallways behind the stores at the mall? That's where we were. It was like bizarro world. Because it had like little tiny things like journeys or the gap on the side. I was like, this is bizarro world mall. So we're running through. And it's, it's like kind of the Benny Hill thing where, you know, like the music is playing, we're running around, and we're trying to catch Joe, and he would like pop out through these other doors into the main part of the mall, and we'd pop out, and then we'd see him dart through some other ones, and we'd run through there, and we're chasing after him, we can't find him anymore. All of a sudden, we hear these footsteps behind us, and we're like, ah, he's behind us, but actually, they're much heavier footsteps, much heavier. And behind us is the mall security guard. And he yells in a deep voice, stop mall security. <laughs> and fear is waving over us. And so my sister and I decide we'd better stop. Otherwise, we're going to be in more trouble. And so we stop. And he, he apprehends us. And we start, he goes, come with me. And we're walking with him. He goes, you guys are like going down these corridors. I'll take you down a corridor you won't like. <laughs> and we end up in the mall security office. And we realized that he actually had cameras of like everything in the mall. And so he was like watching us across the screen, like bouncing on all these different screens. And so he comes after to, to chase us, to apprehend us. Um, we'll come back to that in a minute. We've been going very slowly through 1 Corinthians 13, uh, which is all about love. Uh, in fact, this chapter of the Bible is almost certainly the most well-known and most trusted statement on love in the history of the world. Uh, if you go to York Avenue, you'll see it on the side of on the side of a wall there. And it's very specifically about self-denying love. Uh, and honestly, there are a few things more difficult than self-denying love. Um, what we've been learning through this series is uh, a lifetime of self-denying love. That's what every Christian is called to. Uh, and actually what we've been learning is that's how it is that we mature. That if you want to know what it is to grow as a Christian, it's to exercise and grow in self-denying love. Now, you might be thinking, you know, isn't, isn't self-denying love just maybe a sort of uh, self-betrayal? You know, to do anything that you don't want to do, because to be honest, you don't, most of the time you don't want to do self-denying love. You know, isn't that inauthentic? Because you don't want to do it. Wouldn't self-denying love be sort of the opposite of self-love? 
And the thing that we have to be careful about is to not read our modern idea of love back into this ancient text that's full of ancient wisdom. Uh, you see, the modern idea of, of love is that love, is, you know, the way we think of it now, love is it's an emotion, it's a feeling. You know, it's an attraction, it's a desire. The modern idea is that love isn't something you choose or even something you do, it's something that you feel. And yet at no point in the most popular, most trusted statement on love in the history of the world, 1 Corinthians 13, does it ever mention feelings. Except to say what love is not. So it talks about anger. Anger is a feeling, but it says love is not that feeling. Love is actually not ever defined in the chapter as a feeling. And so as we come to the end of this chapter on love, what is it? What is love? Well, the best definition I think I can come up with based on 1 Corinthians 13 is, uh, is this. I can put that back on the screen. Love is choosing to exercise self-denying actions and attitudes for the sake even of those who don't deserve it. That's the best definition I can come up with from this chapter. Love is choosing to exercise self-denying actions and attitudes for the sake even of those who don't deserve it. And so here's what we'll, we'll see as we come to the end of this chapter, that love is actually the greatest of all the things that endure. Therefore, we should pursue it at all costs. We should chase it down until we apprehend it like a mall security guard chasing some kids through the corridors. Chase it until you catch it. And the Apostle Paul says two things about love in this last verse, verse 13, that should cause us actually to want to make love our, our chief aim, our main pursuit, the thing that we chase after to apprehend at all costs. And the first thing he says about it, and this is point one, is that love is permanent. Look again at verse 13. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. And that word remain, it's, it's the word abide. It means to endure. Uh, the idea, it's actually related, it's not the same word, but it's related to verse 8 where it says love never fails. That's the idea here. And in the context of this passage, what Paul keeps doing is he's contrasting what will remain, what will endure, what will abide with things that will cease, that will pass away and disappear. And one of the reasons Paul writes this chapter in the first place is because the, the church in Corinth, who he's writing this letter to, they were pursuing all kinds of things that, that are not permanent. So they were pursuing certain gifts. They wanted these special gifts. And they were pursuing certain abilities. They were, they were pursuing certain experiences. Uh, and actually, they were even, if you go way back to the beginning of the chapter, they were pursuing different celebrity leaders. All of them are things that Paul says they're bound to cease, they're bound to pass away, they're bound to disappear. But in contrast to all those things are these three, faith, hope, and love. And so to remain, to abide, it means to not have the changing and transitory character that belongs to the gifts, that belongs to the experiences, that belongs to the celebrity leaders. But instead, he's talking about an unchanging permanence. Now, to what extent does, do these three things abide? How long will they be around? How long will faith and hope and love remain? Well, based on what Paul said in verses 8 to 12, they're around for eternity. In other words, three things that will for sure make it to heaven. There's a fourth, my dog. But the other three things <laughs> that will for sure make it to heaven are faith, hope, and love. And it has to be that all three remain because Paul uses a singular verb for all three. Only these, these three things will remain. 
Now, here's what Paul is doing. He's actually painting a picture of what we'll be doing for eternity in heaven. We, we sang about that already, right? That we would praise the name of the Lord our God forever and ever and ever. And so for the next five billion years, if you can speak of eternity in terms of time, which actually you probably can't, but, but just thinking about the expanse of eternity, everyone who is there will be filled with and constantly expressing and acting out faith, hope, and love. These three are permanent. So put aside the harps. You might play a harp, I doubt it. Put aside the clouds. If you want to know what heaven will be like, think about faith, hope, and love. And think about ultimate faith. Now, what is faith? Faith is trust upon evidence which leads to action. Faith is trust upon evidence which leads to action. Or the book of Hebrews puts it this way, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. But the question is, do you really need faith in heaven? Right, we sang that too, right? We'll see Jesus face to face. And so won't all of our faith become sight? What is there to have faith in if we see everything? And what about hope? Well, we need hope in eternity. You know, hope is a gladly and firmly held prospect of future good. That's what hope is. It's a gladly and firmly held prospect of something good in the future. But isn't heaven the ultimate good place? Won't we be surrounded and wrapped in the light and the goodness of God's presence? And so do we really need faith, hope, and love in eternity? Well, the answer according to Paul is yes. Because think about it. Even though we'll see Christ face to face, we'll see God himself, we'll see him. You and I will still be finite. And he will still be infinite. And so for all of eternity, we still have to exercise faith. Faith will go on forever because we will forever be finding out new things about the nature, character, and work of God. And what about hope? Well, hope goes on forever too because we'll never cease to catch new glimpses of God's glory. I mean, I used to live in this high-rise apartment that overlooked the city center, and we had a view of almost uh, all the most important buildings and the most beautiful places in the city that we lived in. And when we first went to look at the apartment to buy it, you, know, you open the door, you walk in, and there's these floor-to-ceiling windows, and it just takes your breath away because you can see it all. And our, our breath was just taken away, and then for the first few weeks after we moved in, you'd come home, and you'd open the door, and you'd walk in, and it would take your breath away. But you know what happens. Eventually, it just becomes commonplace. Eventually, you move on from the view, and that's just your home. Paul is saying heaven's the opposite to that. That we'll still be filled with hope because the glory of God will never become commonplace. You will never bore of the glory and the goodness of God. There's no end to his glory, which means there's no end to our hope. And there's no end to our faith. No end to our faith that we'll be able to apprehend that glory in some way, to know God more, to love God more and more. And so faith, hope, and love, they're inseparable companions. companions. They're completely united. Because think about this, what is, what is faith without hope and love? It's just some sort of like cold intellect. And what is hope without faith and love? Well, it's just like an idle dream that fades away. 
But even more so, what is love without faith and hope? Well, love without faith, it's a love that doesn't believe anything. And a love that doesn't believe anything, it, it dies. Love without hope, it's the source of unparalleled suffering. And so even if only two of them remain, all the joy and beauty of eternity fades away. So you need all three. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. Now, in light of that, just think for a minute about the temporary things that we tend to pursue at all costs. Think about the things that fade away. Think about the things that we tend to focus so much of our lives on that just fade away. You know, it doesn't say that our career will remain. It doesn't say that our our dating life will carry on into eternity. Some of you say, thank God. It doesn't say that our money will abide. It doesn't say that our status will remain. It, It doesn't even say that our talents or abilities will carry on. These three remain. Faith, hope, and love. Then it also goes on to say that the greatest of these three is love, and that's point two, that love is the greatest. Now, you already know the word Paul used when he wrote this statement. The word for greatest there is the word mega. You know, in science, it's used as a unit of measure for millions, and so a megawatt is a million watts. Uh, you, You know the word megalomaniac? A megalomaniac is a person with delusions of greatness. They think they're great. Uh, I, the lottery in California is called Mega Millions. I just bought some uh, toilet paper rolls and it said on there, Mega Rolls. I'm not sure what that means. <laughs> but to use the word mega is to say that something is ultimate, is to say it's the greatest. And if you take this entire chapter into account, what Paul is saying and has been saying is that love is greater, it's mega, than all the things that pass away. And now he's saying that love is the greatest of all the permanent things, all the things that last and go on for eternity. Love is the greatest of even all those things. And so love is not only the greatest thing on earth, but he's saying it's the greatest thing in heaven. Not only is it the greatest thing in time, but love is the greatest thing in all of eternity. And there's at least one big reason that love is greater than faith and hope, and it's this. Uh, Faith and hope, they're things to have, but love is something to be. Faith and you can have faith and hope, but love is something that you are. It's a way of life. And more than that, love is it's the only one of the three that you can actually give away. As much as I want to, I can't give any of you my faith. And as much as there are times when I want to, I can't give any of you my hope. And you can't do that for me either. But there's one thing I can give you, and there's one thing you can give me that will remain forever. That's love. Now, let's go back to that definition of love. Love is choosing to exercise self-denying actions and attitude for the sake even of those who don't deserve it. And I do think that definition is helpful. But remember way back when we started looking at this chapter, we noted that Paul doesn't, doesn't actually give a definition of love. He does better than that. Paul gives a description of love. And while most of us, myself included, which is why I wrote a definition, <laughs> would prefer a definition... But on further reflection, a description is is far better. Because a definition, it's it's a piece of information we can know. It's something we can tuck away in our brains and categorize them, like your knowledge of history or math or you're memorizing a script. 
But a description is different. A description is meant to come alive. And listen once more to this description of love and tell me, just listen to this and tell me if you can come up with anything greater than this. Verse 4, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. This is what eternity is. This is what will go on forever. This is what remains. This is what abides. And get this. In heaven, you're a patient. I'm going to say it again because I don't think the impatient of you heard that. In heaven, you are patient. We will be kind. We will no longer envy. We'll no longer envy the success of others, and when we do have success, we won't boast about it or be proud. In heaven, you'll never again dishonor another person. You'll never belittle someone. You'll never think less of someone. And again, stop me if you can think of anything greater than this. You will never again be selfish. You will never again be angry. You will always protect. Remember the image of that from a few weeks ago? It's the image of a shelter. You'll be a shelter. The greatest thing of all the things that will endure for eternity is love. And this is the description of the kind of person a Christian will be once we reach heaven and we see Christ face to face. And in fact, that's the only possible way you can ever become that kind of person is to see Christ face to face. Why? Well, remember who it is that Paul got this idea of love from in the first place. He wasn't thinking of himself. He wasn't thinking of his friends Mark or Apollos or Lydia or Onesimus. Because only one person ever lived like this. Only Jesus Christ was able to live like this in the flesh. And because the Bible itself describes God as love, we can do this. We've done this most weeks in this series, but go to the next slide. We can replace that word love with the name Jesus. That Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not boast. He is not proud. He does not dishonor others. He's not, easy, he's not self-seeking. He's not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. He always trusts. He always hopes. He always perseveres. And what Paul just got done saying in verse 12 is that the only way to become this kind of person is to know Jesus Christ face to face. Even more than that, to be fully known by Jesus Christ. Now, I imagine there are a few groups of people here in this room. Um, we'll say there's three. Um, and there are some of you, maybe very few of you, who we would call, you, you'd call yourself actually, a joyful Christian. 
you feel like your spiritual life, your connection to Jesus Christ is going well, it's pretty strong, and you're, you're filled with joy. But I imagine there's another group of people in this room, uh, probably the largest group of people in this room, who, yes, you are Christians, but you feel like your connection to Christ is pretty weak, pretty feeble. We'll call this group the struggling Christians. And you're feeling that way, whether because, you know, maybe you feel like uh, there's a sin that you're just not really willing to give up. Or it might be that you, you feel like you, you have done that and you're doing your, your absolute best to move towards Christ, but you just feel like you're, you're not getting anywhere. And then there's a third group, people who uh, maybe are not Christians. Maybe you're interested in Christianity or maybe not, but either way, you're here. And regardless of which of those groups you fit into, or maybe you feel like you're somewhere in between, that's okay. I want you to see how Paul has bookended this whole chapter. It's sort of like the front and back cover of a book. If, if I were to title Paul's book about love, it would be this, Pursue Love at All Costs. That's the title of Paul's book. You're welcome, Paul. Uh, and that's actually point three, Pursue Love at All Costs. Because take a look at how he bookends the most famous words about love ever put to paper. Here's the front cover, uh, back in chapter 12, verse 31. He says, and yet, I will show you the most excellent way. Now, there's another word that Paul uses here that you already know. You already know this word uh, in the Greek language that he wrote it down. And you know the word excellent. You already know it. It's the word hyperbole. Uh, hyperbole, it's exaggerated language. You and I, we use hyperbole all the time. Uh, you'd say, that's the best pizza in the world. Or that movie was literally the worst movie ever made. And I could go off on a whole thing about how we no longer how to use the word literally, literally, and somehow literally has become hyperbole. I don't know how that happened. I blame whatever generation is behind me. But when Paul uses the word hyperbole, he really means it. In fact, in the ancient world, that word meant exceedingly, it meant extremely, it meant beyond all measure. And so you could translate this verse as, and yet I will show you a way beyond comparison, a way that is better than all ways. Literally the best way. Thank you for getting that. <laughs> and then he goes on to chapter 13 to talk about self-denying love. That's the way beyond comparison. And then flip to the back cover of the book. Go to chapter 14, verse 1. Paul says, follow the way of love. And then if we put the bookends together, it reads like this, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. Follow the way of love. Uh, last week I was in a used bookstore, and I love used bookstores, um, and I actually almost didn't even go to this one I did, and I'm so glad I did. Um, I love used bookstores because um, I have a short list of things that I'm looking for. Um, rare books that I'm not willing to pay obscene amounts of money for uh, online or wherever you might find them. Uh, and so I go to used bookstores and I just go to the normal shelves and I hope that maybe possibly I could find one of these books on my list of rare books that I want to have. And for, uh, I think, at least 15 years, I've been looking for a first edition of any Roald Dahl's children, uh, children book. Uh, firstly, because I love Roald Dahl, and I love Quentin Blake, his illustrator, but also because uh, not only is a first edition of any old book rare, 
But a first edition of a children's book is even more rare, because what do children do to books? They destroy them. They tear the dust jacket off. They tear pages out. They color all over them. And they, they usually don't make it, first editions. And so this has been a pursuit of mine for 15 years. 15 years I've been chasing after a first edition of any of Rudd books. Chasing it, looking for it, trying to find it. And I was in a used bookstore. And what did I find? I found a first edition of Rudd George's Marvelous Medicine. Uh, and um, here it is, pretty much mint condition, got it for $10. It's worth 10 times that. That's why I hit it up here. <laughs> when Paul says, follow the way of love, he's talking about a pursuit like that. An unending pursuit until you apprehend the thing you're pursuing. In fact, and I promise this is the last of the Greek words I'm going to throw at you today. Um, do you know the word Paul uses for follow? Well, no, you don't. It's the word persecute. Persecute the way of love. It's literally what it says. It's the same word that, that is in Paul's mouth in Acts chapter 20 and in, uh, in, through his pen in Galatians chapter 1 when he talks about how he used to persecute Christians. When he used to pursue them, to chase them down until he apprehended them, until he caught them. And we tend to only think of the negative connotations of the word persecute, but it literally just means to pursue something rapidly, earnestly, until you apprehend it. And that is what Paul was doing before he was a Christian. He was rapidly, passionately, urgently pursuing, chasing down Christians until he apprehended them. And if that's what that means, do you get what Paul is saying? Paul is saying that we are to persecute love. We are to passionately and earnestly chase it down at rapid pace until we apprehend it. The language is striking. But Paul is trying to say that exercising self-denying love, it's not a side gig, it's not something you do with your extra time, it's the main gig, it's the main thing that a Christian is to do. That is the most excellent way, to persecute love. In other words, love, self-denying love, that's to be our passionate devotion in this life. That is the most excellent way to live, a life of chasing down and apprehending love, not to receive it, but to give it, to be the kind of person who gives out self-denying love. That's what we persecute. And of all the things that you and I can pursue, only three things make it into eternity. Your money won't make it. Your success in your career won't make it. Your house won't make it. Your meticulously crafted style won't make it. Your dating life won't make it. Not even your collection of rare first edition books will make it. At the end of this life, only three things remain. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. And so therefore, pursue love at all costs. Persecute it. And if you think about it, why, why are any of us wasting our time pursuing anything else? Love is the greatest of all the permanent things. And so isn't it wise to invest in to pursue only what lasts? 
Let me finish with this. Um, why should you pursue love? No matter which of the three categories you find yourself in, the joyful Christian, the struggling Christian, the non-Christian. I mean, why should even a non-Christian pursue love like this? Why pursue it? It's because love like this pursued you. Love like this is pursuing you. I mean, do you really think you'd be sitting in a church in the center of a city like Los Angeles if love like this wasn't pursuing you? Jesus Christ is love itself, and he's pursuing you. The old Puritan preacher Thomas Goodwin, he said it this way. He said, Christ is love covered over in flesh. In the book of John, Jesus Christ, it was love incarnate, love covered over in flesh. He said this, John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And that is exactly what Jesus Christ did. Reflecting on hearing those words from Jesus' mouth, years later, the Apostle John, he wrote this in 1 John chapter 4. He said, this is how God showed his love among us, that he sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Did you hear that in there? Twice it says that he sent his son. That's pursuing language. And what that's saying is that Jesus Christ, God the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ, is pursuing you. And the way that he showed ultimate love is by dying a death he didn't deserve. And so instead he dies the death that each of us deserved. That Jesus Christ was without sin and yet he died a sinner's death. The difficult truth to swallow is that you and I are sinners. And so we deserve to die a sinner's death. But for those who put their faith and their hope in the love of Christ, who put their faith and their hope in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, your sins are forgiven. And the love of God is lavished on you. It says poured out into your hearts by the Holy Spirit. And this is what it is to be a Christian. It's to be a person who puts their faith and their hope in the self-denying love of Christ. Do you see the three? Faith, hope, and love. Put your faith and your hope in the self-denying love of Christ that was exercised when he died on the cross and he rose from the dead. And one of the things I often say when talking to a person who's not a Christian but is maybe open to Christianity or at least interested enough to talk to a pastor about it Sometimes we'll be sitting, you know, maybe in a coffee shop or somewhere, it doesn't even matter, we're sitting somewhere, and I'll say, okay, you know, that wall, Jesus is, he's leaning up against that wall over there, that's where he is, he's standing there, and we're sitting here. And tell me, which direction are you facing and how close to him are you? We do a little assessment to try and figure out how close they are to Jesus, but I'm realizing that's not the whole picture. Jesus is never just standing over there, he's not just leaning against the wall, He's pursuing you. The, the imagery in this text is that he's walking towards you. And here's the thing. If you're pursuing love, in one way or another, you are walking towards him. But the only way you'll be ever 
ever able to apprehend love like this, where you really are patient, you really are kind, you really don't envy, you really don't boast, you're no longer self-seeking, the only way you'll ever be able to apprehend love like this is if you apprehend Christ and he apprehends you. That's the only way. And this is where faith and hope come in. Because to apprehend Christ is to put your faith in him. And to be apprehended by Christ is for all of your hope to be in him. To be apprehended by Christ, it's the Christian's greatest hope that Christ will never leave you, he'll never forsake you. And if you've never done that, if you've never put your faith and your hope in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins in order to receive the love of Christ in your heart, you can do that really simply with me in just a minute when I pray. But if you are a Christian, perhaps that struggling Christian, the thing I think we've most learned through this slow walk through 1 Corinthians 13 is that Christian growth, maturity, whatever you want to call it, it comes through exercising self-denying love. And I think the more that we do that, the more we mature, the more joyful we become. And so that's the call here. And I'm not saying it's definitely the thing if you're the struggling Christian. I'm not saying it's definitely the thing that's holding you back. It might not be. But what this passage is saying is it's self-denying love is that important. It's, it's meant to be the central thing in the life of a Christian. And so persecute love. Chase after it until you catch it. And as we wrap this whole series up, I just want to remind you why we decided to look at this chapter in the first place. We did it because we want to be known in Los Angeles for our love. That if people talk about Christ Church Los Angeles, they could say all kinds of things. They could talk about the stained glass. They could talk about the donuts. They could talk about the, the parrots that live outside. But the thing we want every person to say about us if they come into contact with our church is that we are loving. That's the kind of church we're aiming to become. If only someday somebody would say something like, you know that church? They really persecute love. Well, let's pray that prayer I mentioned earlier. This prayer is that I'll pray it's specifically for you if you've never put your faith and hope in Jesus Christ. And so you can pray this prayer along with me now. Heavenly Father, I want to recognize today that you have been pursuing me with your love. And yet I also want to admit that I have been rejecting your love. I have sinned and gone my own way, but today I want to receive the love you have for me in Jesus Christ. And so I confess Jesus Christ as my Lord. And today I place my faith in him that his death paid for my sins so that I am forgiven. And I place my hope in him for my eternal salvation in heaven. Thank you for pursuing me with your love. In Jesus' name, amen.